0: The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Lord, what a blessing that we we can sing about the hope that we have that our soul can find its rest in you. Father, what a blessing that we can come... As your people to this place, that we can open your word together, that we can be reminded that while there is much brokenness in this world, there are many fears and doubts and pains and frustrations and things that we look at and say it ought not be that way. We can come here and and see a a remedy for it all. A solution. A solution that's not found. In our own hands and through our own works and through our own striving, but a solution that is found in resting, in faith, in trust, in hope, in peace, a solution that's found in you. Lord, I pray this morning as we get to open up your word, as we do every week, we get to look at this, this objective truth, this ultimate authority, this um, infallible book we can come and we can rest, knowing that all that we need for life and godliness is found within it. Would I pray that you would be with us this morning, and in your son's name, amen. Well, I would invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 11. I'm going to put this behind this, I'm going to kick this, Andrew, I hope it's not going to, that's been bugging me the entire morning, if I know it's behind me, it would still be bugging me. Okay, words are a consistent part of everyone's life. We're gonna start with transformative information right now. Consistent part of everyone's life. But what the words mean are not always consistent. Unfortunately, there is nuance behind our communication. I want to illustrate this by going to a phrase that many of us know, and many of you, I'm sure, are learning on a daily basis because it's a southern phrase and I know that not everyone in this room is from the South and might need a uh, a Southern English lesson. So I'm going to give you a Southern English lesson this morning. The phrase is, bless your heart. Maybe you've been told this phrase. Maybe somebody said, bless your heart. And the way that you can interpret this phrase is through multiple lenses. It could truly mean somebody wants to bless you. They look at what you do and they want to say, bless your heart. Thank you so much for doing this. Or maybe, possibly, somebody has said bless your heart to you and they're not actually wanting to bless you. Maybe it's a little bit like bless your heart. (laughs) Sit down before you hurt yourself. And then even still, people can use this term, bless your heart, as as, as an an offensive reality where they're actually calling you, I'm sorry parents, I'm going to use the S word, stupid. Well, this demonstrates that... um, There are nuance in our statement that we can't always assume that what the statement says is what the statement means. Bless your heart is just one example of a southern phrase where things can be kind of turned awry. But here's the thing as Christians, we have so many church-specific phrases so many lines that we use off the top of our head that we just throw out in our vocabulary that can be confusing at times. I, I, I understand this. I do this all the time. If, if you're not um, churched, that's okay. We're so glad that you're here. But you could be listening to my language and be like, what does he mean by that? What is, the, um, what, 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 is, what is he trying to illustrate there? What's the intention? What's the interpretation of that? Well, I want to highlight one of the phrases that we often use around here in our church, and that is often used in church. And I want to, um, in light of our passage, of the misunderstood um, passages, I want to uh, redefine it for us or remind us of what it actually means. And here's the phrase, resting in Christ. It's something that I've prayed for, that we might rest in Christ. It's something that I have used in my sermons that we might rest in Christ. I have this hope that all of us might rest in Christ. You've heard this phrase over and over again. It's out there in the Christian language but possibly when you've heard this term rest in Christ you might be interpreting it differently than what the Bible means when it says to rest in Christ. You see, some of us, when we hear the phrase, rest in Christ, we assume that that means that there's no need for growth in our Christian life. Just stay right here and you'll be good to go. You don't need to add anything to your Christian life. Others might hear this phrase and see it as an excuse to live without rules and regulations. Like they throw it around and be like, I'm just resting in Christ. I can do whatever I want because I'm resting in Christ. They hear the word rest they actually, mean, they actually assume it means the absence of work. But here's what's interesting. What we're going to see this morning from Matthew 11 is that the phrase actually has work at its very core. The phrase resting in Christ is there to reorient our view of work. It's there to offer hope to the hurting, compassion to the downtrodden, encouragement to the weak, and motivation to us all. So we're going to get to unpack again this phrase, resting in Christ. Now, I don't want to go any further without reading the text of Scripture that we're going to get this from. It's a text that I have quoted multiple times. I hope that it's one that you have memorized. It's one that you can uh, wake up every single morning and lean into knowing that, that, that God is there to be gracious with you. And it is Matthew eleven twenty-five 25 through 30. So if you will read that with me this morning. At this time, Jesus declared... And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here's where I want to start this morning. I need you to go someplace in your mind. I need you to take this trip with me in order to fully understand this. And here's where I need you to go I need you to go to your favorite vacation spot. What's interesting is some of you have maybe gone to that vacation spot. This summer I was commenting to Amy, it's like everyone's back from vacation this week. It's like everyone has been done, done with your travels. But here's the thing. If you can pick your best vacation, where would you go? What would you do? You get to pick the guest list. You get to pick who goes with you and more importantly, who doesn't go with you. You get to pick whether it's the beach or the mountains you can go on a cruise. Listen, this is an all expense paid thing. I, don't, I want you to dream outside of your personal budget. I mean, you could go rent a yacht out in the middle of the Mediterranean that's gonna cost $2 million a week and you're gonna have some person bring you, I don't know, pina coladas on the hour, every hour. I mean, it could be the best thing on earth or, because I know some of you don't exactly like to vacation that way, and that's okay, it could be in a home by yourself sitting in front of a fire with a good book with no one asking you to get anything. I don't care where your vacation is, but I need you to go to, in your mind, to that place. What are the feelings that come up when you think about that vacation? What's the joy that that occurs in your soul? Like, oh, I get to, what's, what's the word that I'm gonna use? Rest. All of the burdens of jobs and responsibilities and expectations and and home and cooking and cleaning and all that stuff just go away. You get to rest. What's stopping you from taking that vacation right now? Why can't you go on that vacation? Now in your mind, you're creating this list. Money, time, Maybe physical ability. Maybe you said my ultimate vacation is to climb to the top of Mount Everest. First, you're crazy. Second, awesome. Maybe it's physical ability. Maybe it's the vacation time at work. Well, I'd love to go on a three-week vacation traveling across Europe, but I've only got four days left of PTO. Maybe it's family issues. Well, I'd love to go on that vacation, but I'm taking care of a loved one. My kids aren't old enough to go there yet. I don't for whatever reason. I I don't know. I, I don't know what other resources that you're lacking in order to take that vacation and we can feel then when we think about I so much want this rest but I can't get that rest because of whatever limitation there is. We can feel this depression. We know what we want but we can't get it. Here's why I had you think about this vacation because the rest Jesus is offering us Today, The rest that Jesus offers us every single day has no limitation. You see, we can feel the same way about the rest that Christ is offering us. We can think, I'm not good enough to receive it. I have something that is limiting me from being able to sit and fully enjoy it. But those limitations that we place upon our rest in Christ are not time, money, physical physical abilities vacation time all of those no it's it's like knowledge i don't know enough to rest in christ i don't know enough scripture it's training i haven't gone through enough bible studies i haven't read enough books maybe it's natural ability you don't understand i'm an anxious person i can't i can't feel the assurance of my salvation i'm constantly doubting that maybe it's you know there's this idea you don't know the struggles that i have I can't rest in Christ with the sin that I struggle with. Maybe it's just this thought of, I haven't been successful enough in my spiritual life to truly rest in Christ. You see, there might be levels of affluency with certain vacations. I am never going to take a vacation in the Mediterranean on some yacht that's gonna cost a million dollars a week. I'm not going to because even if somebody gifted me that, I'm gonna sell it to somebody else and take the money and use something different. I understand that there's levels of rest, but here's the thing. There are no conditions placed upon our rest in Christ that we have to meet. Let me prove that to you. Look where Jesus started this section that I read. It's a prayer. It's a prayer of thanksgiving to the Father. Jesus is looking out over this crowd of people that's following him around that is exhausted by the religion of the day. They've tried... Everything they possibly can to find this rest that they so deeply need. And Jesus here, before he says, these amazing words have come all to me who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest, looks out at this crowd and prays to the Father. And look what he prays. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. What did he hide? Well, what he was hiding was that the reason that they can find the rest was not because they were the wise or the understanding. Rather, this rest was not based upon what you know and what you can do. No, this rest is based upon whom Christ will give it. He might give it to some who are wise and understanding, but it's not because they're wise and understanding. And he's going to give it to some who are children, and it's not because they are children. He's going to give it to whom he chooses to give it to. This is what he says as as he goes down. He goes, because of your gracious will, all things have been handed over to me by the father and no one knows them except the son, the father, and no one knows the father except the son and to anyone whom the father chooses to reveal him. What this is saying is this is a offer of rest that is indiscriminate of what you have done, what you do, what you know, who you are. This is a rest that can be given to you today. Imagine that. Often we hear this appeal to rest in Christ and we start in our minds to layer over the things that we have to do in order to achieve that rest. We go, no, I can rest in Christ once I clean up my act. I can rest in Christ once I've checked the spiritual boxes that I've been told that I have to check. I can rest in Christ once I, I can truly, once I'm no longer doubting Christ. I can rest in Christ and we put some barometer around that, that we have to achieve in order for us to actually rest in Christ. But our rest in Christ has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with him. Those whom he has chose to reveal it to. You see, think back to that vacation. What do you say when you're sitting on that beach, looking out at that ocean with a book and the pina colada in your hand or wherever you're gonna go on your vacation? What do you say? I earned this. I deserve this. I saved up my PTO. I saved up the money to be here. Think back of all the stress that's at home and you're like, oh, yes. I deserve to be sitting here in this moment, with this moment. We think, my actions have justified this moment of peace. Christ's rest is completely different. None of us can sit there and say, our actions have justified us, this rest that we have in Christ. None of us. None of us can say, I've done enough, so now God's given it to me. It's the exact opposite. All of us, if it's up to us, will be found wanting. All of us would have to say, I haven't done enough because there's somebody else out there who has done more. We're going to see in a moment that was the Pharisees. That's what the Pharisees were doing to these poor people where they were just beating them over the head with this thought of, if you can be as good as me, then you can rest in Christ. And they're looking at I'm saying, but I can't because I literally can't just walk around and study the Bible all day long like you can. I have a job and responsibilities and I'm not, I, for them, I can't read like you can read. And so there's these limitations to it. Christ's rest is not like that. Christ's rest is not for the wise and understanding. It is is indiscriminately given to whomever God wants it to be. You see, Christ's rest is given to those whom he chooses from his gracious will. If you feel Christ's rest today, when I say rest in Christ, what I am meaning is that because God graciously wants you to feel that. Christ. Grace is given to those whom has seen the Son and has run to him. Christ's peace is declared upon us, regardless of whether you're wise or foolish, weak or strong, those who have labored hard to find it and those who have stumbled blindly into it. But look at what this whole idea of resting in Christ is. Look how kind of the, the epicenter of this section 28 and through 30, look how it starts it's an appeal it's a plea you can sense that Christ's heart is breaking he desires this this is a call come to me all who are labor and heavy laden and I will give you rest this is an indiscriminate call you can just see this crowd out in front of him. he's like come to me just come to me That's all that it takes. This isn't an appeal. He's going, you need this. What you've been striving for is me. Maybe what you need to hear this morning is that appeal. Is that call. When you read this verse and you think, but there's something that is limiting me from coming to Christ. There's something that I cannot take that step towards him. There's some reason why I can't trust and rest in him. That's not there. The appeal from Christ is come Because he is there in front of us desiring to give you this rest. All who labor and are heavy laden. You know the picture, the imagery that's used here is somebody under an extreme load. All who labor and are heavy laden. I can just imagine this person with just this weight on his back that is, that is just that is bearing down upon him and he is scraping his way through life just saying, I wish that I could get this burden off of my shoulders. And it's interesting, a couple chapters later, in turn to Matthew 23. Just days before Christ's death, Jesus turns his attention directly towards the scribes and the Pharisees. And out of frustration, out of anger, righteous anger, he chastises the scribes and Pharisees and listen to what he says about them and consider how this directly ties back to labor and heavy laden. I'm going to read the verse first, I don't know, 15 verses. I'll stop when I could read the whole chapter. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, though. so I'll stop at some point. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats of the synagogue and greetings at the marketplaces and are called rabbi by others. But you are not, called, or are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humble and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of God, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter themselves... You neither enter yourselves nor those who enter it go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and land to make one single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. It continues. Woe to you. Why is Christ so? Angry at the scribes and Pharisees because what these scribes and Pharisees have done to these poor people who are just looking for mercy, they have placed before them not a call to repentance and a call to come to Christ. They place before them lists of things to do. It's interesting. We've had conversations one-on-one with various people How you can find that person who is struggling with assurance. Struggling to know whether they are good with God. Struggling with the whole idea of Christianity. And when you start to talk with them and talk with them about what their life looks like. So quickly their Christian life goes back to I'm justified by what I do. I can't rest yet because I'm not good enough yet. I'm working on it. I'm going to ace the Bible reading plan. I'm trying to pray every day. I'm trying to whatever. You fill in the blank with whatever your personal um, wish list there is for a Christian. And what you realize is you're never going to do enough to merit and to earn that rest. So how do you have it? How can Christ, here in Matthew 11, going back there, how can he say, come all to me who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest? Because what he does, what's not state, stated in this verse, but rather what he is living out is his, is his entire life, is saying, you can't do it. But I am. Imagine Christ is walking around in a dead and broken world with sinners. Himself being truly man, and truly God, and is living a sinless life, is living as we all are required to live, as we were created to live, in sinless perfection, having communion with God. Christ is living in that way right now, and he's looking at it, a group of people that are required to live that, that way, because we are creatures, and we have to obey God, and yet cannot, and he calls them and says, come to me, and I will give you rest. Well, What is he saying? Come to me and the rest that I have because I have lived the perfect life, I will give to you. To use another theological word, maybe you, you needed to find, so I'll do that justification. What he says is come to me and I will justify you. I will declare you righteous. The righteousness that I have earned because he lived a perfect, sinless life. I will declare that upon you. I'm not going to make you righteous. No, you're still going to be a sinner. You're going to be a saint and a sinner. But I will declare you righteous. And because you have been declared righteous, because you have been justified, you can rest knowing that everything that is required of you is done. He doesn't declare you 99% of the way there. He declares you Completely righteous. You don't have to add to it. You can't add to it because I'm sorry, God doesn't deal with 101%. And we can rest knowing that what we need has been given to us in Christ. I want you to go back to that vacation just for a moment. Last time. Imagine you could do that, whatever you're picturing in your mind, for the rest of your life. You would enjoy it for about a week. Maybe, maybe you could make it a month, but I know something about you, because I know it about me. There would come a point in time, even at the, the, the best vacation that you have, that you think to yourself, I want to do something. I want to work, I want to build. I want to labor in some way. It'll happen, I promise you. you. You might say right now, oh, you have no idea how tired I am. I will never get to that point. No, you will. A couple years ago, the, the church graciously allowed Amy and I to take a sabbatical. And we spent seven weeks on the road. Drove 10,000 miles. We got a camper, fixed up a camper, went off and saw, I think, 12 national parks Got all the way up into Canada, saw Glacier National Park. If you can ever make it there, it's amazing. You should totally go there. There's a lot of great national parks, but that's the one that stands out. And after seven weeks of doing exactly what we wanted to do, we we were sightseeing, we were hiking. This is the way that Amy and I vacation. We like to do things. I'm not exactly a sit-at-the-beach kind of guy. I can do that for about, I don't know, a day and a half, and then I want to go do something. We got to go mountain biking in, in, in Utah. Dave and I almost killed ourselves on this. Awesome trail there. We got to do all this fun stuff. But after seven weeks, I wanna know what was going through both Amy and I's brain. It's time to do something. It's time to get back uh, you know on the horse, if you will, and, and 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 use our hands for work. That's not a surprise. Because we were made to work. We were made to build. We were made to labor. Laboring is a good thing. That's what we were made to do. I think the worst description of heaven, the one that makes me throw up the most in my mouth, is that scene where angels are sitting, on, where we are angels sitting on clouds and robes with hearts, just strumming all day long. <laughs> if that's heaven, I don't, I don't want heaven. Like, that's boring. Think about Adam in the garden. What was he called to do? Before sin work. Cultivate the ground. Be fruitful and multiple. Have dominion over the earth. He was doing that and loving it and it was work. I'm sure that he was laboring with the ground and there was sweat and there was dirt and there was good things and yet it was what he was designed to do because as creatures we were designed to work. Then what happened with the fall? Well, we got things confused because Work went from being an action of worship and joy to self-reliance and self-justification. Work went from doing something that we worship God with to God saying, okay, you think you can do it better? Great, you try to go do it yourself. And you can't. But notice where this verse goes. He says, come to me all who labor, labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And look at the very next verse. What's he saying? Take my yoke upon you. I'm sorry, but there is no way to interpret yoke outside of being a tool of work. It is undeniably a tool of work. When these people heard the word yoke, they could see donkeys and oxen with a a yoke laid on their shoulders and they went to work pulling something. But here, Christ says, I have a work for you that's no longer... um, laborious, that's no longer painful, that's no longer frustrating, a work that you were designed to do. You know, there are these moments when, in, in our life when we get to see somebody truly loving what they were designed to do. They get to suit up and go do their job, and you can see the joy in their eyes, because like, this is what I love to do. What Jesus is saying is, come all to me who are labor and heavy laden, trying to do something you were never designed to do, and I will give you what you were designed to do. What's he going to give us? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. What's the work that he's talking about here? Well, I don't think it's a physical work, though physical work can still be enjoyable. I think this is spiritually focused. And the question that we can ask is, well, then what is the work of the Lord? Well, the work of the Lord, I'm gonna use terms that might be surprising, is doing, is obeying is fulfilling the law of God that we were created to do. The reason that Adam could work in that sinless environment and find joy and worship out of it is because he was doing what he was designed to do. What were we as creatures designed to do? Obey God. We were designed to work for God. Not work to self-justify ourselves, but work as, as a moment of worshiping him and so what does Christ do he says listen stop trying to self justify yourself rather take my yoke upon you and learn from me and you are going to find rest from that so how can we learn from what Christ says what is this yoke well in some sense it's as simple as what is the first and second greatest commandment it's doing exactly what the Lord has commanded us to do love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself you see, what makes labor laborious is not the presence of effort or exertion. Rather, it's the reason behind the action. And in changing the reason behind the action, changing why we do what we do, we change work into actually a moment of rest. We change work from self-justification into worship and joy. We, we turn something that at one point would lead to bondage and it leads to peace. You see, if I'm trying to obey the law of God in order to save myself, guess what? That, that's bondage. If you think that the answer to being good with God is fully obeying all of his laws, and it's up to you, have fun with that. But you've already lost it, so you're never going to get back there. Because the standard is perfection. But what Christ gets to come in and do is say, listen, you're not going to be justified by this. The reason you're justified is because I lived it perfectly. Rather, now you get to, as Christians, as those who have a right relationship with God, those who have communion with the Father, those who can see the Son and the Father because of Christ, now you get to learn from me, as the text says, what my yoke is like. Now you get to approach the law... I said that at the heart of this is doing. Now you get to approach the law in a way not to self-justify but to worship again. Now we get to read scripture and we get to see all of the beauties of what Christ has, how he has designed us as creatures to live. We can look at the 10 commandments and not, not feel that as this burden on our shoulders of but I have lied. I have lusted. I, I, I have stolen. I have taken God's name in vain. I have put idols in front of me. That is this weight of condemnation on our shoulders. Now I get to look at it and go, oh, well, okay. Obviously, that's not going to justify me. And it doesn't need to because Christ has justified me. Now I get to look at those and go, so this is how I can honor my father? I get to... I, I can work towards that, not, not out of this moment of justification, but out of this moment of delight. The law now can go from this moment that, that's just like painful and, and it is, uh, it, it's this drudgery on our life to this thing that I get to participate in and be blessed by. That's what he's meaning here. Just real quick, i got to wrap this up quickly because there's other stuff in the service we have to do. Notice how this verse continues. Take my yoke upon me, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. This is the only time in scripture that Christ describes himself, describes his heart for us. The only description, gentle and lowly. Imagine the person who's been following the Pharisees with this image of God being this this wrathful monster that is just going to overwhelm you with his anger towards your sin. Now, when you come to Christ, no longer is it this wrathful monster that's going to destroy you because of your sin. No, there's this gentility and there's there's this humility of of heart realizing, I'm going to give you what you can't possibly earn on your own. There's so much wrapped up in this phrase. I, as I was uh, walked in here, th- we got a bunch of these books back here. We passed them out a couple, of, uh, I think a year ago. Highly recommend this book. You can take one for free. It's back here. It describes all the, the heart of Christ for sinners and, and sufferers. It's fantastic. You can definitely pick one up. It will go into what that means more and more of gentle and, and a lowly in heart. And look how he ends it. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It would be a huge miss this morning if I didn't end our service with a gospel invitation. Because I know it's so easy to come into churches and to fall right back into the same old pattern that the Pharisees built up. For me to stand up here and for me to open up the Word of God and for me to preach from it, and it is good and and, and a blessed thing and for you and, and for you to hear the law and you're going to hear the law in such a way that's what I have to do to rest in christ that's what I have to do to be good with God. I have to be able to to check all of the boxes, and then I can have assurance it's so easy to come in and to experience God in that way because unfortunately the church and i it's, it's got a lot of blessings, but the church has, has, has gone awry in that way where they have misunderstood what resting in Christ means. Here's the gospel. When you feel that weight on your shoulders, that burden on your back, you can't get it off. You can't get it off. And actually, when you feel that burden on your back, amen, amen, Hallelujah, because the worst place to be in life is to have that burden and not realize it's there. But when you feel that burden on your back and you're saying, how can I rid myself of this pain, of this misery, of this sin? How can I get to a place of hope and joy and peace? How can I know that I'm gonna be good with God for eternity? The answer is not more work. The answer is faith. The answer is Christ. The answer is to run to Christ. And the only thing you bring to Christ is your sin. And go, Lord, Father, Jesus, I know that I can't do this. I know that I need you. Please, will you give me rest? And here's what he's gonna do. He's gonna take your sin from you. And he is going to, because he did, bear The weight of God's wrath for your sin on the cross. Here, Jesus in time is looking at these. Dear saints saying, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. And the the burden that he is going to bear for them and for us is something that none of us could ever do because the burden he's going to bear is the cross. And and the worst part of the cross is not the, the tree or calvary or the soldiers or the nails or the whips or the thorns or any of the physical things. I mean, that is terrible. The absolute worst thing about the cross is God's wrath that was poured out upon an innocent man that did not deserve it for our sin. And so when you come to him and go, I've got this burden that I can't deal with, he takes that burden from you. and goes, I will pay for it. I will accept it. I will receive it. I will justify that. And what I will give you in return is rest. If you're here this morning and you have never experienced that rest, if you have never come to him, if you are still trying to earn it on your through your own hands and through your own merit, I would plead with you stop. Stop now. You're never going to get to the end of that race. You're never going to get to the moment when you say, "I'm good." But what I can say now and I can say every single day is that you can come to Christ in this moment and go, "Lord, I'm done. You take it from here. Lord, the only thing I need is you because I can't do it myself. As we turn our attention towards communion, this is what we get to celebrate. We get to celebrate the gospel invitation, the picture of the gospel in these two elements. We get to see the blood that Christ poured out for us, the, the, the shedding of his blood that was used to satisfy God's wrath for our sin, we get to pick up a little cup of grape juice and, you, and have it as a reminder that we are good with God because not of our work and duty, but because of Christ. We get to pick up this, this body of, of flesh, this piece of bread that signifies that body of flesh, and go, I'm good with God not because of my life, because I know many of you, and there's a lot of great people in here a lot of great people, but none of you are perfect. There's something somewhere in your life that you have done that God's wrath is burning in anger towards. And you get to pick up that bread today and remember that the reason that we're good with God is not because of what we have done, but because of the perfect life of Christ. But here's what I would say. If you're here this morning and you have not placed your faith in him, we would ask that you, you wouldn't partake of these elements with us. And we would ask that because we don't want them to confuse you. We don't take these things to save us. The, the, the message of gospel and rest isn't take communion. The message of gospel and rest is come to Christ and place your faith in him. But in taking this, not having placed your faith in him, we don't want that to confuse you to, to, mean, to assume that this is something you have to do because newsflash. When we say rest in Christ, what we mean is that our rest in Christ is found nothing in our hands. But everything what Christ has given us. So with that, I'll pray and we can take this table together. Lord, thank you for this gift. As your body, we get to come this morning. And as, as Nick pointed out in Sunday school while talking about communion. And even as all of the other churches that are uh, around the world get to come and we get to partake of this meal. Lord, we are your people and and it's a people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Slave and free and Jew and Greek and male and female. And the thing that we have in common is that we are all one in Christ and all find our rest in you. Lord, I pray for for the person this morning that has been trying to self-justify themselves. It's stuck in the loop of thinking, I can't rest in Christ. I can't come to you. I can't be saved until I get over this thing, until I reach some level of moralistic perfection or whatever the standard they place in their mind. Lord, I would pray graciously that you would break them of their sin, that you would show them that there is no possible way that they can save themselves, but that they can come to you. Lord, I pray for the person that is struggling with assurance, that just it feels that you are far from them, that doubts that they can be good with you because of whatever sin and brokenness that is in their life. Lord, help them to see the weight of your glory, the weight of your grace and mercy, and help them to rest. And then Lord, I pray for others that experience that rest, but might be stuck in the thought process that that doesn't mean that we aren't called to obey your law. That are stuck with the thought that 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 doesn't mean that we don't have the opportunity to fight against our sin. Lord, I pray that you would give us a passion to live lives that are honoring to you. To live lives that glorify your name. To live lives that are examples to the The dark and the dying. To say that Christ is different. Lord, I pray as a church that what we would be known for is our rest in you. Thank you for this time in your son's name. Amen.